So there'll be a few listeners who won't already be familiar with our guest for this episode, episode 130. She's a former Wales international and captain, one of the pioneers who in the early 1990s helped gain official FAW recognition for a national women's team. She has served on and chaired a number of national boards, including being the current chair of the Welsh Sports Hall of Fame, which incidentally, for a quick plug, we discussed episode 123 with Rob Cole. Um, or at least we discussed the football content. Uh, she is a professor of public policy in the Governance of Wales at Cardiff University. And if the governance of Wales isn't murky enough, <laughs> she ventured into the world of continental football governance last year by standing to be UEFA's representative for women on FIFA's ruling council. It's a warm welcome, Chrysokunis, to Laura McAllister. It's a pleasure to be with you. And also in the dugout this evening is uh, Leon C. Barton. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm okay. Am I, am I just going to be brought on if, if if we need a goal in the, the last 10 minutes or something? <laughs> <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I was in the starting line. Like I said, really warm welcome, Laura, and thank you for making time of an evening to, to join us. Why don't we start at the start? How did you find yourself involved in the game, falling in love with the game? As a, as a young girl, was the family connections, were family involvement in the game? Where did it all start? Yeah, a bit of all of that, really, Russell, in that uh, my grandfather was a massive football fan. Uh, my mother's family all come from my steg in the Llinvy Valley. And my grandfather was a minor, like everybody at that time. And he was a massive uh, football enthusiast. You know, he was a Cardiff City fan, but he also supported local football, you know, my steg Celtic and so on. And so when I was a really small child, I just remember the kind of enthusiasm and passion that he and his friends showed basically around football. It's hard, isn't it? Because, you know, you, you, you're second guessing, obviously, um, you, the start of the involvement. But I, I can't remember ever not kicking a ball. And when I look at some of the old family photos and my, my auntie Glenn always digs these out whenever we go and visit in all of the fo- photos she's got of me from the time I was about three onwards, I'm I'm usually either kicking a ball or carrying a ball under my arm. Her son, Steve, who was the same age as me, you know, we used to play everywhere. They were from Ogmervale. We used to play everywhere, really, in the parks, in the streets. From the time we were about four or five onwards, I guess. Um, and I had a lot of male cousins as well, which helped. So we used to, you know, play in their gardens and so on. So it's kind of, it's hard to remember a time when I didn't play, but, but you know, it was all informal. It was all community-based, you know. The truth of the matter was that I, there just wasn't the opportunity to play at club level for girls growing up in the 70s. So basically, um, all my football was recreational, you know, in some weird and wonderful places like electricity yards, you know, in the back of terrace streets or on rough bits of ground or cul-de-sacs and so on. Was it always playing with boys or were there any other girls who, who, who played with you at that time? Yeah, I mean, I, I've tried to sort of dredge this up from my memory. I mean, there were one or two girls in every sort of big group of players. I mean, I remember in my steg when we played, we spent a lot of time in my steg growing up because my sister and I, Fiona and I, went to um, Welsh school in Betos, which is sort of on, on the way up to my steg. And because it was quite a long way to travel from Bridgend in the mornings, we stayed with my grandparents um, for some of the week. So we pretty much lived in my steg and, you know, it would be like a big, massive football game after school in the, the streets near where my gran and grandpa lived in Cumvelin. Um And I do remember one or two girls playing then, but, you know, overwhelmingly boys, you know, maybe like massive games with, say, 30 or 40 kids and there would be me and one other girl or me and two other girls. And and what's interesting about that when I think about, you know, how you perceive yourself getting involved was that I think because we could 
we, as in me and the other girls, could play a bit. Um, we were accepted and integrated and nobody, you know, blinked an eyelid that we were girls. But I mean, I can't imagine a girl who was less confident or, you know, not a half decent player just strolling up and joining in. So I think it tells you a lot about how, so, you know, some of us kind of came through the system despite all the obstacles that were there. But, it, you know, if you if you hadn't been confident and a decent player, the chances are you just wouldn't have ever had an opportunity to start playing football in those days. Were there any role models? for you whether that's I don't know maybe in school or so the outside of the family then not women who played football because it was a really rare commodity for me and I just didn't know of any women who played football really but there were women athletes um, and women teachers who were athletes I mean I was fortunate when I went to comp back in Bridgen then to Brintillion Comprehensive two of my PE teachers were international sports women um, uh, in hockey and netball and you know, I, I loved all sports, so I played hockey and netball. I mean, most most of my early kind of competitive sporting career was in track and field athletics, actually. So I, was a, I wasn't brilliant, you know, I would never have made it beyond club level, but I was a decent middle distance runner. So I did a lot of athletics with Bridgend YMCA and then with Bridgend Athletics Club. But my teachers were really clearly role models for me because um, they were um, Barbara Owen and, and Bev Pierce, um, and Cynthia Morgan, who was a netballer, and all of all of them really encouraged me to, you know, aim for the top in those sports. And, you know, who knows if I hadn't taken up football, maybe I would have played for Wales in hockey or netball, and maybe I wouldn't, of course, you know, because I I got no idea what the competition was in the in those days. But my heart was really set on football, and I think they were a bit disappointed in that because they they saw that the chances to play properly internationally in football were probably going to be much more scarce and maybe in netball and hockey but nevertheless you know they they really encouraged me and they inspired me really when I looked at what they'd done in their sports but I guess the other role models and in football were from from players who played for Cardiff City and, and Wales you know because by then I was you know a season ticket holder at Cardiff City and I went to all of the away games with my grandfather initially and then then you know made my dad take me and then when I was old enough with with friends so it was kind of you know people like Leighton James and Terry Orrith and so on and you know some of the, the the players that you know I remember from my earliest years at Cardiff City were people like Adrian Alston and Tony Evans which were a fabulous striking duo at that time Peter Sayer you know people like that really um so yeah it was it was an absence of female football role models for sure and that's why I'm so pleased now that girls mm. growing up have great people like yeah. Sophie Ingle and uh, Jess Fishlock and, and Tash Hardin to look up to yeah and you can only see yeah, it absolutely the, the the last couple of women's games I went to, I mean, the, God, the, the, the Greece game at Nathalie was Baltic. <laughs> but the number of girls, young girls who were there was was incredible. I remember genuinely really, really amazing. And uh, yeah, and they get to see those role models in a way that you weren't able to in terms of playing the, playing the game and, and yeah, wearing and the red and, and all the, the rest of it. Exactly. Yeah, and it's their space, isn't mm, it? I think yeah. that's what's really encouraging now when you go to a women's international is that the girls feel they own the space as well. So, you know, I take my two girls down. I was in Tlenetli as well, and gosh, I was freezing, wasn't it? And it was. And, you know, my girls are only four and eight, and there was a time when the game was won, and I said, should we go now? You know, it's kind of like with 20 minutes to go. And neither of them wanted to leave because they wanted to see the players at the mm, end, you know. Yeah. Um, and obviously I know Jess and the girls well, so, you know, usually they get away from them. So, you know, for them, it was really important to stay till the bitter end, literally bitter <sighs> cold end, to, to check on the players, you know. So that I think that's quite, it's quite emotionally nice, isn't it, that they feel that connection. Yeah, yeah. Just to go back to, to childhood, Laura, I mean, how did the boys that you played with 
in these like big pickup games um, take to you? Or did you face any sexism at that age or was it that you were a half decent player so it that didn't really matter? Yeah, I don't recall any prejudice at all, really. Um, because I think because I could play, you know. Yeah. So when it came to picking sides, you know, I never remember being the last player um, picked um, because I was a girl, or I never remember, you know, boys being offensive to me because I was a, a girl. So maybe that's a bit blessed, you know, compared to some girls' experiences. You know, I'd often go along with, you know, my my cousins as well who were boys so you know they probably just treated us as a group to be honest you know and didn't distinguish between me and the boys Um, but yeah I do think it's to do with ability you know I think if boys can see a girl can play um, then they're unlikely to be able to kind of harbour any sexist or discriminatory views and it's interesting now I mean not to make you know a kind of political point about it but you know you look at the new system we have the elite pathway for the younger girls the 14 you know 14 to 16 year olds and as part of their kind of academy development now they're all playing against elite boys you know different age group elite boys but i think that's great because you know not only does it strengthen their competitive ability but it also it's an educational lesson for boys you know to see how talented and technically good some of these 13 14 15 year old girls mm, are mm. Now, i've mentioned it a couple of times on this that my daughter plays in a, a, an all-boys team. She's the only girl in her team. And once or twice we've rocked up in, I don't know, Rumney or uh, Fairwater or Park Trelai. And there's maybe only been two or three girls on all of the pitches, you know, pr- primarily male yeah. boys. Uh, I'm shooting, shooting 11. But um, yeah, it, it just, there does seem to be just this acceptance that, you know, girls sometimes, well, not sometimes, some girls will be, you'll be playing with or playing against in these sort of mini mini sided games, it's um, it's really quite quite refreshing. So when did you first sort of play organised football, and is that much later on? Yeah, well, yeah, re- really late, you know, but probably in common with a lot of girls at that time. I played a bit of mixed football with I think it was with Bridgen YMCA, um, but then that was sort of outlawed at quite a young age in those days, and then I just sort of drifted really, just playing you know outside school and occasionally in the schoolyard with boys and then I put more of my energies into other sports like athletics and netball and hockey because there was a structure really so you could play competitively you know in a, in a regular league and so on so it was only really playing organized football when I went to London to university um, and uh, I I went to LSE and I thought gosh you know there must be women's teams in London even if there weren't any that I knew of it around the Bridgend area and I looked up teams that were local and so on and I trained for a while with Millwall they were one of the better teams at the time um, and they, I think they had two women's teams at, at that uh, at that point you know reserve team and a first team and I, I, I played the odd game for them they were mainly friendlies but you know again I kind of got the taste for playing you know structured 11 aside football again then so that was my f- my first kind of re-engagement with proper organised football. And then it, you know, it really took off for me when I came home from university and um, joined Cardiff City Ladies. And then that was pretty much, you know, the start of me playing properly and regularly um, in 11 side football. So I, mean, I was listening last night to the podcast that you did with Ellis James uh, a few months back. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned... I mean, it seems sort of unbelievable now that someone... For someone whose international career was from... 1994 to 2001 I think that there's absolutely no footage yeah. of you playing football out there I mean I've looked on YouTube and stuff you know you, <laughs> it's crazy you'll have to tell us sort of what kind of player you are because there's no 
you you were and what kind of player you are now. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, because there's I, no footage to watch. Yeah, well, I'm a much slower, much slower player now. Is the best way to put it. No, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it's it's interesting you say that because you know we we did um, the documentary for S4C last uh, year with Slam Media called Laura McAllister Game Gavartal, which was all about the sort of issues around women in the game, and we. We hung it, or the peg for hanging the whole programme, was my FIFA um, election last year. But it was really about um, the history of the game. And, of course, for that, they needed some footage of me. And um, they literally used every bit of footage there was, which was about, you know, the equivalent of, like, 40 seconds in total or something. And it shows just really how ignored we were as international footballers at the time. And that's just the reality, you know. There was no opportunity to be filmed, either for you know, performance analysis or for media to cover it. So there's these rare clips with blinking awful commentary, I have to say, pretty patronising and dreadful um, from, you know, ITV, BBC and so on. But that's about it, you know. And then there's a couple of kind of more magazine-y features that were done on Cardiff City Ladies or the Welsh team when we first played. So, yeah, I think that kind of encapsulates the... I suppose the ignorance around the women's game in the 90s and the early 2000s and and we just had pretty much internalised that by then because nobody was interested, nobody took much notice of um, anything we were doing really. But your question was what kind of player was I? Um, yeah, I mean, I played most of my 24 caps for Wales in defence um, and most of them as a sweeper. I mean, people don't mention the term sweeper much now you know they kind of see it you know positionally it's got a bit out of fashion really but bear in mind we were starting off on the international football journey and we were kind of starting from a very blank slate in terms of coaching and preparation and so on so most of the time we were under the cosh and I was very quick I was probably one of the quickest players in the squad and I I think I think I'd say I read the game pretty well so being a sweeper suited me really you know I knew when to tackle and when to when to stay on my feet so I think of my 24 caps I probably played about 18 as sweeper played full back a couple of times and, and once as a defensive midfielder for a very specific game but yeah, I mean, internationally, I was a defender. But when I started playing for Cardiff City, I was a winger, mainly because I was quick again. But, you know, it wasn't my strongest position, you know, so I gradually edged back into defence. But by the time you're winning these caps, the Welsh team is official, in inverted commas, recognised by the FAW. But you were part yes. of the effort to make it official. Mm-hmm. You were the part of the team that went to, to Alan Evans, the then secretary of the FAW. To, to do what? What were you, what were you sort of asking him? Yes. Well, I, I always think I've got too much credit in this whole story and I, I take every opportunity to put people right on this because, you know, just because I, I've spoken more about it and I've do, probably done things in football, people assume that this was down to me and it certainly wasn't. You know, I can't stress this strongly enough. Um, the, the real pioneers, I've always said, are the, the girls and the women who played you know, back in the 70s when the ban on women playing, <coughs> excuse me, was lifted. And they were the ones who had to really organise everything themselves. You know, they, they took on the responsibility for finding coaches and managers and for all their travel and equipment and kit and, you know, expenses and hotels. They were the ones who really paved the way for then, you know, my generation and then generations subsequently. But my role really in the visit to Alan Evans was just because I was bolshy and said to a couple of people who played for Cardiff City at that time, look, why are you accepting the fact that there's no official women's team? It's ridiculous, you know. I mean, bear in mind, you know, this is kind of 93, 94 
you know, these were times when the men's team were on the cusp of qualifying for a World Cup, you know, and there were big crowds supporting the men's team. This It sounds like it should be ancient history, but it isn't, you know. And it seemed to me completely ludicrous that, you know, the FAW just weren't taking on the responsibility for organising the women's side officially. So all I did really was agitate, I guess is the best way of putting it. And then, you know, Karen, Karen Jones, Michelle Adams, who were two real stalwarts of the game and had played in the unofficial years and ran Cardiff City Ladies. Um, we wrote to Alan Evans um, and I helped them kind of frame the letter. And fair play to Alan because he was much maligned, you know, over certain decisions. But over women's football, you know, we should never forget the debt that the women's game owes Alan because he responded pretty pretty positively from the start. We went to see him in Westgate Street and he kind of looked over his glasses at us and said, mm-hmm. well, you know, I don't know much about the women's game. Convince me we should bother with it. And we we, we tried to. And fair play, he was true to his word. He came, he said, well, I need to know more. Came along to watch a couple of our games at uh, Trelai, you know, in Ely, where we played our league games. And it, interestingly, he was hooked from the very beginning. And um, I think he could see something in the game that really appealed to his love of football. You know, and I, I don't want to get all, you know, wistful and romantic about this, but he could see the kind of values of the women's game. And then if you align that with some of the technical skills that players had at that time, there was something really attractive about it for him. And he became a massive, massive women's football fan. You know, he used to go, he used to go away to watch Cardiff City Ladies or any club, Barry Town, the big clubs. And then, of course, he took, took the decision because in those days, let's just say the FAW was um, less democratic mm. than it is now although some might say it's not terribly democratic now, but <laughs> Alan could pretty much decide what he wanted to do in those days. And he, he pretty much decided that the FAW was going to take the women's side under its auspices. And he enters entered us into, I think it was the 95 European Championship qualifiers. And we were away to go. So it was a baptism of fire because, you know, there was no setup, no organisation, no proper coaching, no technical development. And out of somewhere, we had to get a squad together to go and compete in a group that contained the world champions, Germany and Switzerland and Croatia. So not easy, but, you know, fair play to Alan. You know, he he, he seized the moment and, you know, we had to start somewhere, didn't we, with this? Yeah, what about, uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy because, I mean, for me, like the 90s doesn't seem that long ago. You know, it just feels like a few years back, even though we're talking... No, it, it seems crazy, but, like, what was the state of, of women's football in terms of the more developed countries like the USA and, and Germany at that time? And women's football was getting big crowds for internationals in places like the USA, wasn't it? So, I mean, it seems beggar's yeah. belief that we were so far oh, behind. They were, they, yeah, you know, the, way, the best way of describing it is that there were, you know, we were leagues apart, literally. But then so were lots of countries at that time. You know, it's not a case that Wales was unique... You know, there was no organised football in in Scotland or Northern Ireland or the Republic. And even in England, it was pretty poor at that time structurally. But then if you looked at some of the Scandinavian countries, um, if you looked at Germany, um, obviously the US and Canada, um, they were were miles ahead, you know, um, literally miles and miles ahead of us. And we had the fortune or misfortune, depending on which way you look at it, of being drawn in a group with Germany. Um, And in fact, that's when I made my debut in Bielefeld in in Germany and I was brought in to do a very specific job which was to to man mark their star centre forward and they hammered us 12-0 but and this is important she only scored one goal and she was their all-time top scorer so at least they did the marking (laughs) job fairly effectively (laughs) but I mean uh, gosh I think her name was Heidi Muller I might have to check that 
but she she you know she'd scored like over 100 goals for germany really top player you know and they they were semi pro at the time but you look at that and people will say god that was embarrassing but no it wasn't actually because you know we we'd picked the best players we had in wales through through, through trials but we had no prep, literally no prep. We played one friendly down in Avonlido in Portalbot against Iceland, who were already much more organised than us, lost 1-0. And then we went straight into the qualifiers. So we had no prep, no coaching, no time together, um, no kit that fitted, you know, and we got, I'm sure we'll come on to that in a, in a moment. We just flew out um, and we competed. And in fact, we played three games in eight days as part of the um, qualification. We played in Germany, then we went to Switzerland, to play and then we went to Croatia so we played three games in eight days which no no men's team would play really with no prep and all that traveling and you know a lot of it by coach within those countries so there was no shame in in getting hammered by the world champions that was just a reflection of where women's football was at that time and if you shy away from competing in a qualifying tournament then how do you ever get the game kick-started you know so so I think that's where pioneering comes in you know we have to lose games in order to be able to you know beat Greece 5-0 and you know give France a game out there in in uh, mm. recent times and it's stepping stones isn't it to progress you know so I think we're all conscious that whilst it wasn't ideal and nobody likes getting battered it's better than not playing at all and not having a women's national team. And I mean, anybody who wants to maybe be a bit sneery about that um, needs to be reminded that the men were shipping six and seven only a, a year or two yeah. later as yeah, well to, like, to Turkey and, and the Netherlands. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think you know, the game has come a long way in terms of the national setup and the FAW. You've alluded to a couple of things there um, a lot since uh, since those days. But presumably you and others involved with the, the squad, both on the field, on the touchline, Presumably you pick things up from when you go to the play the countries like those that you mentioned, Germany, Switzerland and so on, to see, okay, this is how they organise and how they arrange and Yes. You know, the, yeah, for, you know, all that kind of side of things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you can't go to countries like Germany or even Switzerland at that time, but certainly Germany and see the kind of infrastructure that they had around their game and not be envious and want some of it for yourself, you know. And and that pleases me as well, the fact that now, you know, our girls who play for Wales, have pretty much everything that they need. I mean, you know, there are arguments over scale and resource, of course, and I'm sure we'll come on to that. But, you know, that they have the infrastructure similar to the men's setup, quite rightly. Um, we had nothing, you know, literally nothing. We had, uh, Kath Morgan and I reminisce about this in um, the, the programme I did last year for us, Pedorek, and, we, you know, we talked about having, like, one training, one set of training kit for a week, well, you imagine, you know, you're playing in rain and mud, staying in a hotel room and you're rinsing out your kit, you know, to be able to wear it again the next day. Um, and, you know, we had one playing shirt that was XXL because we basically had the men's cast off kits. So it depended on who your opposite number was in the men's squad. And, you know, because I was a defender, the chances are I'd, I'd have a large, large <laughs> kit because most defenders are big, you know, obviously, and I'm slight build let's say so you know I'd have extra extra large men's kit you know and you might think oh does it matter you know you're still wearing the, the red shirt of Wales and yeah okay of course it doesn't matter symbolically but it matters in the sense that there are practical issues with that you know because the shirt is so big you know it's coming over your hands and you know coming out your shorts and you know 
it's ridiculous really as a performance athlete you know to be having kit that isn't you know isn't fit for purpose literally having said all of that we were incredibly proud to be the first official welsh national team and whilst we would have moaned to ourselves about the lack of resource and preparation we knew that we were lucky you know we knew that a lot of girls who'd gone before us hadn't had the chance to do what we were doing they would have killed to have a a Welsh kit with the Welsh badge on that they hadn't had to buy and or make or sew on themselves, you know. So you, you've got to get it in perspective. We might have had a few moans, but we were as proud to represent Wales as anybody, male or female, that's gone before us and that's come after us. Oh, there was a great touch as well last autumn to have some of those internationals in that era, uh, women internationals, announcing the squad. Yeah, it was great. I thought it was amazing. I thought, you know, the FAW have been absolutely first class with that sort of you know, initiative and creativity and uh, a little fun as well. Um, yeah, they have. Uh, to, to be fun, I thought that was really, 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 really good. And what reminded me, and I, I'm afraid I, I can't dredge the name up from my memory banks, but um, she was on the um, the fields uh, by Gibbons Down in Barry saying her name's Black Woman who played in yeah, those Asia Martin. Asia Martin, there we yeah, go. Yeah, I played with Asia. Uh, well, I had, a, I had an email uh, or like a message from somebody in the current team, current squad, about a year or two ago asking... Did I know, and I'm afraid I didn't at that time, who the first black woman to play for Wales was? Because I think it was off the back of some uh, information around um, Eddie Paris, who won his only cap for, for Wales in the 30s, and therefore the first uh, black male player. And again, it, it just kind of revealed to me that, well, you know, again, there's so much of that heritage, and with a different hat on, I do spend a bit of time on the sport and heritage side of things in Wales. And it's, you know, it's not just you know the players now it's the players who came before but it's also kind of the record keeping and the statistics and the cap numbers and the shirt numbers and everything else as well that that goes that goes with that that um probably still has a you know an, an awful lot to to reveal and and uh, and turn out for, for the anoraks maybe <laughs> if no one else yeah but you know asia martin's an interesting player you know good good forward really good forward and i played a couple of times with asia for wales you know, she experienced racism uh, when we were out playing in Eastern European countries, for sure, you know, because we, we mm. heard it from the terraces. Um, I'm trying to think if it was in Poland, maybe, I, I recall, probably. But in those days, there wasn't any mechanism for even raising the issue of racist abuse, you know, on the terraces. And, you know, I think probably what Asian people had to go through was, was even worse than the men in some respects, you know, and we, we need to document that, you know, we need to yeah. register it because, you know, their history and experiences of representing Cymru is as important as the men. And that's something that we talk about with the sport and heritage stuff is that, you know, sometimes the, the, the aspects of heritage aren't the most savoury. They're, they're, they're not the most positive. And I suppose it could be easy just to you know, let bygones be bygones and sweep things under the carpet. But actually, that doesn't do anybody any good in the longer run. Sometimes the heritage of sport is a little bit difficult to hear, mm. but importantly, needs to be heard from time to time. And um, I think you've, you've given a perfect example there. Well, we're kind of on this point, talking about racism and, 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 and black players who played for Wales. I just wondered, wondered I mean, if you look, look at the team now, the female team, it seems like in recent years, in fact, there's been very few black and ethnic minority players. I mean, I, don't, I don't know there are sort of cultural reasons why this is the case, but I mean, I just wondered, this is quite a, this is a big question, but do you see that as a problem in that we are, we seem to be sort of cutting off quite a large percentage of, of the population in terms of, you know, certain towns and cities and Wales being, having a high percentage of black and ethnic minority people and what can be done about it? Well, it, it's certainly something we should keep, a, you know, a, a proper watchful eye on because 
I think the strategy for developing the women's game is very clear that we need to reach girls in every community in Wales, you know, girls from black and minority ethnic communities who maybe traditionally haven't, you know, gravitated towards football. I think that's changing and that's why I say we need to keep a watchful eye on it because, you know, the the, the investment in, you know, younger age girls through Huddle and schools football and all of the fun programs we have should really see pay dividends now with girls who are coming out of that system from every background and every every race and every community and i'd really hope that quite a lot of those go through the pathway to become you know international players there's got to be real talent in in those communities because we know there is it's a question of have we attracted enough of them to football and you know from other sports probably because at elite level, you know, it's very difficult to juggle your performance with another sport. Have we attracted enough of them at the right level to be able to benefit from the pathway that's there now that wasn't there in my day? I hope so, but I think we need to watch that because if we if we don't, then we're doing something wrong with our community in grassroots football. And I'd be really disappointed if that was the case. I think some of the age group teams are seeing greater representation of BAME girls and, and that's great. So it augurs well, but we certainly need to watch that. And of course, it's not just that they gravitate towards it, that when they do, it's a welcoming, fun, you know, tolerant, exactly. everything else environment for them as well. No, absolutely here, here to, to, to that. Yeah, just to go back to talking about pride that you felt in playing for Wales, um, which I can, you know, well, I can sort of imagine, at least, because I think me and Russ, I think we would speak for Russ here, that we would like... Uh, probably chop off one of our own body parts to, to, to come on for, for two minutes to represent Wales. You know, like a little... I've got a captain supporters <laughs> team. Let's get that on record. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. not bad. That's I, not I, bad. I, as far as I see it, I, yeah. So just you know, that, that pride that you felt and what was your proudest moment uh, of your playing career? I often say this to people, you know, outside football, that, that nothing can beat playing for Wales, you know, and nothing can beat playing for Wales in football, in my view. And nothing can beat captain in Wales, you know. So I feel incredibly fortunate that I've had the opportunity to do that. Sometimes, you know, I'm a little bit envious of how things are now, but but always in a positive way. You know, I never feel um, regretful that, you know, I didn't grow up in this era and maybe, you know, wouldn't have would have had the opportunities that the girls have now with the national team. Because I think it's such a privilege to play for your country that whatever the era and whatever the standard or the status and resources that the the team has, you should be incredibly proud to have been chosen and to represent your country. And nothing, nothing really can beat that. Obviously, you know, your own personal family joys and children and everything else are unique. But outside that world, nothing I've done professionally has matched playing for Wales. Um, and I hope nobody in academia takes offence at that. <laughs> well, it's not the same, you know, is it? <laughs> it's not. No, no, of course it can't be. It hasn't got the same visceral, emotional connection. Um, and I was always kind of an athlete who took the mental side seriously. I think that was probably because I came from other sports into football rather than not, had always been in football. And I used to do a lot of kind of visualisation before games to get myself in the right frame of mind. And I'd always think about places in Wales that were important to me or where I knew people who would be watching or thinking about the game I was playing in. And brings it home to you, you know, you imagine these places are all scattered over Wales from Pembrokeshire to Gwynedd, you know, to Wrexham to Bridgend. And, you know, it brings home to you the kind of responsibility 
on your shoulders. And I, I really felt that in the squads I played in. Those girls would have literally, you know, spilt blood and they would have given their last breath to perform on the pitch. And that's why anyone who's stupid enough to just look at results doesn't get it. Because those girls that I played with were as passionate about playing for Wales as Jess and, and Tash and Kaylee and the girls are now. And if anything, I wouldn't say more so, but if anything, they had to be an ounce more passionate because we didn't have the same prep that the girls have. Um, but they would always turn up, you know, in the right shape to play and they would always give everything uh, on the pitch. But the reason that the results don't tell an accurate story is because, you know, you can't just rely on passion and emotion and commitment to win football games. You know, you've got to have the technical preparation and the uh, resources and the coaching and the nutrition and the strength and conditioning and everything to be able to beat teams, you know, and we just didn't have any of that. We were just left to our own resources, really. And you mentioned your granddad a bit earlier and being a Cardiff fan and would watch My Stake Celtic and, and, and be involved in local football. I mean, assuming, of course, he was still alive when you were playing for Wales, but, but what, what did he make of it all? Yeah, unfortunately, he wasn't um, still alive, which is, you know, big regret, obviously, because he would have loved to have seen me play for Wales. But, you know, my mum and dad and my family would travel wherever we were playing. We seemed to play a lot in... In the north at that time, you know, I played a lot in, you know, Bangor and Connors Quay and uh, Flint and so on. And they actually in Pembrokeshire, in Hanford West and then in Llanelli and places. And they travelled to all of the games to watch me, you know. So I know how much it meant to all of my family to see um, me play for Wales. And it's, a, you know, it's a big commitment, isn't it? You see now with the families of the players, you know, they, they travel miles and they're there and they... Part of that comes from knowing the sacrifices that we've all put in to get to that level, you know. And in the latter stages of me playing for Wales, I'd already moved to Liverpool University to work from Wales as part of my kind of academic career development. And that was really tough because, you know, I was starting a new job as a lecturer. Um, I'd finished my PhD trying to establish myself in that world. And I was still trying to keep up the training of a professional athlete. Um, and it was really hard, you know, I remember the kind of sacrifices, you know, um, of getting up at five in the morning and training. I, and actually, I trained with a great woman called Jo Kaywood, who lives in New Zealand now, and she was a triathlete. And that was brilliant because she had to do the same kind of, you know, really hard mile training that I did. And Joe and I used to just train early in the morning. We train at lunchtime again, you know, if we had an hour's lunch break and then we train in the evening. And so my fitness, I kept managed to keep my fitness up, even though I was kind of in, a, you know, quite an intensive job. But that's the hard bit, isn't it, for amateur sports people? You know, you're having to train like a professional whilst being a professional in a field outside your sport. And it does, you know, it does bring a lot of grief but you know it's worth it as I said you know we're in the Red of Wales and hearing the anthem and all the rest of it you know it's worth every minute that you put in in those dark winter mornings yeah. basically. Yeah. Leon you sat with uh, was it Tom Bradshaw's family? Oh, yeah. Lichtenstein yeah, yeah. of all places wasn't that it? That was his, uh, his, his well it was his first uh, cap for Wales at any level and it was the end of the 19s and it was a, fr a friendly so I wasn't expecting a big crowd there um, I just thought I'd be the only Wales fan there but yeah it was his uh, his dad and his three uncles are all driven over from uh, Shrewsbury, where they live. And uh, it had taken him something like 18 hours. But he scored, at least. Um, he scored a really good goal. And then uh, he was taken off at half-time. <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, yeah, and then they, they were driving back straight after the game. <laughs> that was it. Another 18-hour, sorry, 36-hour sort of round <laughs> trip to watch them, their boy play for 45 minutes. I sat next to Wayne Hennessy's dad over to Belfast for 
uh, I think his under-21 debut, I might be wrong, but it was definitely the under-21s, it was before he graduated to the full squad. It was the same trip where I won that uh, cap with the supporters team, have I, did I mention that? And um, yeah, it was <laughs> just, just interesting, kind of just, you know, again, the, you know, clearly, I mean, no one's going to be surprised by this, but, you know, the pride they had. But again, it was, um, you know, it's just great to be able to come to, you know, to Belfast to watch them. Um, because I don't know how many miles I've clocked up all around Wales and the UK following Wayne Wayne's sort of junior career, and it is it, it is a fascinating insight. And I remember as well when Tom Lockyer made his debut, his family was sitting behind me at Cardiff City, and they went absolutely berserk when he came on. And it was it was a nice it was a nice touch, nice touch. Yeah, we know yeah. we know all about the pride that uh, Sean Morell, Joe's mum, has in watching watching her boy play for Wales because uh, she, she she's. Uh, in touch with us on quite a, a regular basis, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, now, the now staple Sean Morel uh, segment in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting, of course, there is, I think, you know, Sean, Joe yeah. qualifies Mirtha. for Wales via Shard, she's from, uh, I want to say Trilouis, <laughs> but it might be Traharis. Let's say Merthyr, rather than offend anybody in the outlying villages. And, you know, it's his dad is English, but his dad is just kind of like, you know, full on with Wales. And I, I, think, I think I read a story that Sam Vokes' dad was the same again. And Sam Vokes' dad had been as a, as a youngster, had gone out and w- watched England at World Cups and European Championships. But then Sam gets a Wales call up and that's it. I'm full on Wales away now. That's it. <laughs> and I think that's, uh, I think that's terrific. Just a quick reminder that we now have a Patreon page where you can subscribe to any one of four tiers, ranging from £2 to £10 a month. There's a range of exclusive content coming your way, as well as some other perks and offers, not least a 10% discount on purchases with exquisitely Wrexham-based artist Liam Stokes-Massey, a.k.a. Pencil Craftsman. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash podcast underscore Peldroid. I mean, in terms of your academic career, you mentioned, and we talked, you know, obviously governance mentioned a couple of times in the introduction, to you, Laura, and we've touched on aspects of governance now. Is there is a reason why you, because of course you talked about you know the visceral experience of, of playing for Wales and, and and the passion, why you haven't stayed in the game in, in other more hands-on roles, be it coaching, whatever that might be, but have heard more towards the governance? Yes, I mean, I, I think I was pretty clear. I retired when I was relatively young. I think I was 32 when I retired, which is quite young, you know, for a female footballer. And I was... You know, I didn't retire because I was injured or lacking in fitness. You know, I just retired because I couldn't juggle the demands of playing at that level with my academic career. And I felt like it was probably a moment where I had to, you know, decide on the latter rather than the former. And then, of course, I could have thought, you know, could have thought about uh, coaching or refereeing. That would have required just as much commitment in terms of time as playing. So it would have defeated the object, really, of... um, uh, of of retiring, so you know, yeah, people like Cheryl Foster have gone on to, to be brilliant referees, and lots of my teammates have gone on to be brilliant coaches. But that was never really going to be an option for me whilst I was pursuing my academic career. So the next best thing was to get involved in the running of the game, you know, and and I didn't really do that straight away. I got more involved in general sports governance. You know, I, I was appointed to the board of UK Sport and worked with them for a while and then uh, with Sport Wales and then involved with the FAW Trust. And I've, I've always worked quite closely with the FAW and more recently now with UEFA. And I've really enjoyed that, I must say, because it, it feels like it suits my skills, if you like, you know, uh, around governance and strategy and so on. 
but I also know the game and that's quite a you know unique combination as and we tried to play that obviously my UEFA election for FIFA council last April and and it did register well I mean you know if you look back at that election I don't think anybody expected us to do as well as we we did so you know some of that must have registered somewhere along the line so yeah I mean it's also something I've really enjoyed as much as anything. But someone listening to this, I mean, I've gone on a t- slight tangent, possibly. When we say governance, is that a term that might need just breaking down a little bit and explaining a little bit? We're not talking about meetings and minutes and committees necessarily. That's part of it. What do you mean when you talk about governance of sport? Yeah, for yeah it probably does need explaining because we just assume everybody gets that. But it, it's about how the game is yeah, run and how yeah. decisions are made and where power is exercised in order to make the game grow and you know, and give the right conditions for people who play the sport. So, you know, the, the Football Association of Wales obviously is the governing body of football, all aspects of football and for everybody in, in Wales. That's our national association. And then you have, you know, your confederation, UEFA, that looks after the 55 nations uh, in Europe. And then you have FIFA, you know, the global governing body for the sport. And really the governance of the game is the interrelationship between all of those. And then within Wales, the area associations and the clubs and all the key stakeholders who, who run our game. So it's about, you know, it's basically about influence and, and authority and power and decision making and trying to, you know, work hard to get the right strategies in place. Sounds boring, but it's really important because otherwise we won't be able to grow the game for girls or have a disability football strategy or make sure that equality and diversity is built into every opportunity. So, you know, that that's kind of my bag, you know, is, is working at that sort of high level about the strategic development of the game. And it's not necessarily sexy, is it? No, I it's suppose. not. And it's, it's not. not always. It's, it's not always the first thing that comes to mind when you, you know, you walk into through you know Canton to the to the Cardiff City Stadium or, or wherever else it might be. But uh, but it's integral to the game. Well, I was just going to say, I think the the fact that the FAW has really sort of modernised in in the last sort of decade or so is is a key factor in the fact that the team, uh, in terms of the, the male team and the, the female team, but specifically the male team, actually sort of performing on the field I think I think the, the two go hand in hand more than perhaps a lot of fans fans realise and things really need to be put in place behind the scenes absolutely before team can really expect to perform because otherwise players kind of will find excuses not to perform but if things are put right and the system the governance of the game seems sound then the players don't have any excuses so I feel like it's, it's so vitally important yeah, that's a little rant there. Yeah, it is, but we've got a long way to go. Um, you know, if you, if you, um, I'm sure Noel Mooney would would um, say the same as me on this. You know, we're at the start of the journey of modernising football in Wales and indeed of diversifying. You know, the governance of the game. We don't have anybody currently involved at board or council level who has experience of strategic development of women's football and that's quite critical at a time when we're trying to grow the game and invest in the game and make sure that you know our national team has every resource it has this isn't unique to wales by the way um you know poor governance and lacking diversity governance exists pretty much everywhere in world football there's only probably a handful of countries who've managed to really make the game's governance modern and effective and they tend to be in the Scandinavian countries maybe North America 
But, you know, it's interesting if you think back to that election I fought last April. You know, I was up against a candidate, the incumbent, Evelina Cristalin from Italy, um, who's got no background in football. Um, and she would freely admit this, so I'm not you know, I'm not issuing a slight on Evelina, doesn't know much about football, but is from a powerful country. Um, and clearly there are all kinds of politics going on in elections. Nobody gave me a slightest chance of winning that election. In fact, I was told by lots of people in UEFA at the beginning that if I got to double figures in terms of votes, it would be a good result. Um, and the fact that we came within six votes of winning and seating an incumbent, which is almost unheard of in football governance, because there's this weird kind of gentleman's agreement that everybody stays in post for two terms. You know, I don't think people quite compute this. So it's hard to unseat an incumbent, particularly from a powerful nation, because, you know, they've got things to offer that clearly we, we haven't in Wales. Um, but coming within six votes was a real earthquake. And I, I, haven't, I hadn't even computed at the time how much of an earthquake it was. It was only subsequently when I've heard from people in UEFA and FIFA who said, gosh, you know, nobody expected you to to do that well. And I say this really modestly because it wasn't me doing well. It was the kind of team around me who really embraced, you know, what we were selling and the messaging and, and the hard miles I had to put in because I met, you know, 50 of the 55 national associations on Zoom or Teams. And then I worked really hard at the Congress to meet them in person in Montreux to, you know, have the conversations with them about why I was a better choice than Evelina. And so we did win people over, you know, and that gives me a bit of hope that, you know, it's not going to be women who don't know football, who are there to effectively be manipulated by men who already run football in the future. Hopefully we'll see a breakthrough at some point where those of us who are from the game and know the game will be elected. And, and I keep saying to people... This is not about me. If I don't ever get to any other position in football governance, I will still have enjoyed every minute of my football career. It's about paving the way for women who will come behind us. And I know that there will be women, you know, who are great advocates and great strategic thinkers who will be able to take power in the game because of the progress that we've made by sticking our heads above the parapet. And that will make me happier than anything. Mm. You know, I'm really not bothered whether it's me that's elected but or will somebody you stand else again? in the future. Yeah, well, that's the intention. I mean, I'm under no illusions. You know, it's it's hard to get elected. It's hard to get elected as a woman, first. It's hard to get elected if you're from a smaller nation, number two. And it's hard to get elected when you're standing against the big players in football. But some of the response I've had since my election last year has been really, really encouraging. You know, some of the big, big countries have come to me and said, you know, you've got to stand again. Um, you know, we're talking about countries like Germany and Russia and Sweden, you know, and Belgium and Switzerland. So they're not small players. And the fact that my support base came from some of the big nations, but also from the east of Europe as well, which traditionally haven't been that keen on, you know, women who know football being elected to governing bodies, gives us a bit of encouragement. So, you know, what it might not be for that position for FIFA Council, but I hope there'll be an opportunity to stand for a UEFA or FIFA position in the next year or two. And if there is, great. Um, if, if it doesn't happen, then even then we know we'll have made the next step for women who come behind us. So it's equally important mm. on that basis. It's impressive that Belgium uh, are keen because um, they don't usually like uh, facing Wales, do they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in the last few yeah, years. but you'd be surprised, you know. But I mean, gosh, you know, people people were surprised at the result because they knew some of those countries that supported us are big players, you know, in the game. And they made a decision to go against all the culture of elections in UEFA. 
And that's encouraging. I hope that mm. we're on the cusp of changing this because, you know, I can't emphasize this strongly enough. You know, I was up against a woman who was a, wi- a winter Olympic skier and knew nothing again about football. And people will vote for her, you know, because of other things. But the fact that 22 nations voted for me tells you something about the hopefully the wind of change that's going on in football governance. So I think we've got to just, you know, capture that really and, and you know, make sure we don't slip back now in the future. And what's the timetable in terms of terms that they well, set? She, well, Evelina will serve another four years in the role. So, you know, waiting wait three years to contest an election is probably not, you know, ideal. But who knows, you know, if I, if, if I can and I'm still around then, you know, in, in the same position, then maybe. But there's other elections in the meantime, you know, and who knows, you know, I, I've got to keep working with UEFA, which I am doing. Um, around their kind of women's strategy and the future of football convention that they they've been holding, I chaired the women's football part of that for UEFA. So I've you know I'm still kind of in those circles, and if I can keep building some kind of profile, because you have to have that, you know, it's very personalised to win elections. But if I can do that, then who knows? You know, maybe I can stand for something else. And you know, I'm I'm realistic. I know it's not going to be easy. Um, but you know. I hope that there'll be an opportunity, and if not, there'll yeah, be one for somebody to, else in the future. Um, some of the, the, the podcasts mm, that you did mm. around the time that you were standing, you said that like a, a key sort of tenet of your campaign was that you were emphasising that you played the game, and like Evelina Crystalline, sorry. And I, I know I've often thought this is a really big thing, and it's it's sort of noticeable for me, sort of being out in a continent. Um, some of the better run football associations in Europe seem to have uh, ex-players involved. And I'm not I'm not saying it's like a cause and effect kind of thing, but if you look at Croatia with Davos Suka there, look at the uh, mm. Deutsche Fußballbund with Oliver Bierhoff, he's been there for years. And these are the kind of yeah. associations that, we, you know, you would look to, uh, certainly Croatia is another small country, and say, you know, this is kind of like a model for us. You know, they always qualify. They've been in a World Cup final. It's, it's crazy. They're only... It's only a million people bigger than Wales or something yeah, like yeah. that. So I just, I you know, I just wonder if um, that's something that we need to, to do, sort of encourage the more erudite ex-players, such as yourself, whether male or female, to go into how the game is run, um, because I think it makes a difference. Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there, Leon, because... You know, the player's voice is ignored at the moment. You know, the reason we haven't dealt with racism and sexism, homophobia in sport is because the players don't have a voice. You know, there's no agency really for players and there's even less agency for women players and ex, you know, international players. I mean, you mentioned Davos Suka there. Um, this tells you a lot. Davo was one of my biggest champions in that election. He did a lot of work for me behind the scenes. And the reason for that was I'd never met Davo until I got to Montreux, by the way. We just communicated on WhatsApp and, you know, and on Teams and stuff. But the reason Davo supported me and, by the way, Goodney Bergson from Iceland and really did a lot of championing behind the scenes was because they got it, you know. They understood that if the women's game is going to grow and we're going to get strategies that work, we've got to have ex-women players who know the game involved. So that was quite telling, you know. But the downside, by the way, and I think it's quite important that people who listen to the podcast understand this, there is also a counter-movement in football to actually stop people like me um, getting elected. Um, and I think it's based on fear more than anything, because it's not just me. There's people like Moya Dodd from Australia who was elected to FIFA Council and then unceremoniously removed. Moya was a former Australian international. 
and there's quite a few Karen Espelen from Norway. That lots of them have had pretty ropey experiences of being involved in the governance of the game and then chucked off governing bodies. And when I think about that, there's a really obvious reason for this, and I can't prove it, but I think we all know it. It's that some men involved in the governance of sport are threatened by women who know the game. And so they'd much rather, when they create positions such as a women's representative on FIFA Council, they'd rather have an Evelina or somebody who doesn't know the game that they can control and manoeuvre than they would somebody like me or Moya or Karen who know, knows the game. And unfortunately, that's really, really prevalent. And I think that's a big threat to how we develop the game for men and for women. Because in my election, although I, I said, look, you know, we need somebody who knows women's football. I also said we need a woman who knows football per se. You know, so I didn't sell myself purely on the women's football side. You know, I said we need a voice for football that is a female voice. And, and that went down well, you, you know, not just in the usual countries. It went down well in countries like Azerbaijan, who supported me, Georgia, you know, and countries that people didn't expect to, to vote for a progressive candidate, let's say. Mm. But you just have to see the abuse, outright abuse um, that someone like, you know, Megan Rapinoe has, has, has had for just yeah. being, you know, for playing the game as she plays the game, but also standing up for certain issues. And there's, there's plenty of other examples as well, but she's the first and, and arguably the most high profile, certainly in North America, to, to come to mind just for how she approaches the game, faces abuse that, that, that other players, certainly male players, don't get. Yeah, and I mean, I hate to say this, Russell, but I will anyway, because, you know, people can disagree <laughs> if they like. But, you know, football and sport remains an area for some men, only some, um, who think it is a male preserve. Um, and they resent women being involved, whether that's on the terraces, you know, or in the stands or playing or refereeing. Look at some of the abuse that um, female referees have had and female coaches and physios and so on. Um, so it's one, you know, it's one of the areas where there is still a whole set of men who are resistant to women being involved and not just resistant but vocally and actively resistant things are changing clearly and most men don't think like that now but I'm afraid you know there there is still a, a cabal like that and you know as long as that exists and certainly amongst older uh, males we won't see anything like the right kind of representation of women in in the governance of, of the game. When you refer to the terraces and the experience that women face on the terraces that very much resonates with the work of, of Penny Miles, Dr. Penny Miles, yes. with respect of female experiences of following the men's team, but also the experiences of following the women's team and the, and the building of a, of a fan base and a fan culture around the women's team as well. Uh, and still, you know, we do. And I, you know, I think, you know, as Leon touched on it in terms of governance a moment ago, I think there is, I think, you know, I think credit should be uh, paid for the, the Red Bull being more inclusive and more diverse and more tolerant, but that there's still, you know, a huge amount of, of progress still to be to be made yeah. and, and change yeah. to be achieved as well. But Penny's work, if any of the last sort of, whatever it's been, 10 minutes or so of this conversation has resonated with you or, or got you thinking uh, as listeners, then then Penny's work is uh, is well worth checking out. Yeah, I'd just like to talk to you about um, a speech you gave. I think it was in Hey on Why in 2014 or 15, which is where I first like mm. really became aware of you. I'd, I kind of know, I'd known the name, but where I sort of really thought, wow, wow. <laughs> it just, you know, it's like truth bomb after truth bomb. This speech was in absolutely incredible. I don't know if it's still on YouTube or somewhere out there. You can hear it. But the thing that was uh, perhaps most uh, picked up on was the the comment you made about how it was more important for the, for the international profile of Wales 
that we actually qualified for the European Championships in 2016 as opposed to winning the World Cup in rugby, which then you went on to emphasise is not a mutually exclusive thing and it's, it would be great if we had a successful mm. uh, football team and rugby team, but it just, res I mean, for, I've lived in Austria since 2009, so, you know, I kind of know from outside of Wales just how big football is and how you know and and how important it would be to actually qualify for that kind of first tournament and um i just wonder how you kind of look back on that now with us actually having qualified and qualified not just once but qualified again and uh do you do you yeah. kind of uh, still agree with every word that you put in that speech Absolutely, you know, it's very rare you get things right in there when you make speeches, you know, and often you, th you think your words will come back to haunt you. But in this case, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I got a lot of abuse for it at the time. I mean, fortunately, not, not ridiculous amounts, but I got a fair bit from the rugby community. But I think that sort of summed it up because I touched a nerve really, you know, in saying that um, at the end of the day, rugby's played by 20 odd countries across the world, you know, and we sometimes get carried away with what we think of rugby in Wales and assume the rest of the world feels the same. Whereas football, you know, is played by, you know, over 200 countries in every continent. Um, and the the reach of the game and the power of the game and the, the resource of the game is much, much bigger, as we, as we know. Um, and it was never meant to be a kind of either or, as you, as you quoted me then, you know, I, I'm I'm not anti-rugby in any sense. You know, I grew up in, in Bridgen, so you could hardly be anti-rugby. But I'm pro-football, you know, and the reality was, I think anybody who knew how big the European Championships are knew that Wales qualifying would, would change the whole relationship the nation had with football. Um, and it did, didn't it? You know, it gave us a kind of sense of belief and confidence that went well beyond the game, actually. It was the fact that the fans embraced their national identity and took pride in good behaviour and a different fan model to the model that England had traditionally exported on, you know, in major tournaments. Um, and I think just the way the whole nation, you know, was ignited by the tournament as it developed and it became politicised. And that's really important to me, you know, the, the way that football since then has become quite a political environment, you know, and it's become connected with the use of both our languages, Welsh and English. It's become integrated into the whole equality agenda. We talked about race earlier, but also, you know, LGBT and um, gender. And equally, you know, there's been a more overtly political dimension with Welsh football fans for independence, you know. And whatever your views on that, I think football has to be political because you know it's an expression of national identity and pride and um, uh, a way of selling Wales to the world you know soft power and international diplomacy and all of that so when I made that speech it was the Patrick Hannan lecture the BBC Patrick Hannan lecture when I made the speech I kind of anticipated I'd get a lot of abuse from rugby people but but by and large you know as events have panned out I think it was it's been shown to be right you know which we all knew in football that once we succeeded in football the reach of football in Wales is always going to be much bigger than rugby could ever hope for. And you touch on a couple of things there that uh, Lewis Eldred very intelligent articulate young man who joined us a couple of episodes ago to discuss his master's work you were his supervisor I yeah think, yeah saying. great guy looking at some of the different concepts of identity so it was you know identity in a cultural sense social sense linguistic sense 
and looking at some of the, the contrasts and the comparisons, but also similarities, it's fair to say, between the fan bases of, of, both, uh, of, of both codes. And of course, notwithstanding, Lewis was, was very quick to make this point, there are plenty of people, you've alluded it to there, Laura, who, who like both games yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and cheer Wales on in both codes and so on and so forth. Yeah. I think sometimes the, 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 the sort of the polarised camps is, is perhaps um, exaggerated a little bit, or the nature of them being polarised is uh, exaggerated a little bit. But of course, you have some who are fiercely pro one game than the other and, 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 and you know, respect that. But um, yeah, Lewis, uh, Lewis joined us and I know... And I know since we did that, it was in the run-up to Christmas, I know a few people have been in touch to say, listen, Lewis, I'd love to have a read of your, of your master's mm. thesis. And, um, and that's getting a little bit of a you know, high profile, I guess, outside of uh, academia and HE. So, so that was good. But um, yeah, really, really good, uh, really good discussion. That was, it touches on a few of the things that you've, uh, you've said there. On the idea of, of Euro 2016 really changing things, you know, success breeds success. It's sort of a cliche because it's true. And we've gone on to qualify for, you know, a second European Championships and get to the knockout stage of that as well. And now we're in a, a World Cup playoff, having finished second in a, in a five-team World Cup qualifying group, which we've never done before. So that's, you know, that's played out. And something that really struck me, actually, is when, when Robert Page was under-21 manager, he gave this interview where he said something like, I, you know, I have agents calling me up every single day to tell me about this player and that player in such-and-such such a youth team who's got a Welsh mum or a, a Welsh granddad or whatever. And I thought, wow, that did not happen before. I know this from personal experience writing a book mm. about Brian Flynn. Flynn had mm. to go out and find, talk to people, talk to coaches, find out for himself. And just, you know, there's so many sort of chance meetings where he would just ask the question. But he had to go out there and he, he went to 12 games a week and he did this work himself. And now post Euro 2016, I think young players can see that coming on board with Wales, even if they, you know, they, they didn't grow up in Wales, but maybe they, they have Welsh family, is, is not going to be necessarily detrimental to their career because they can go and perform at, on the big stage. So I guess the question is, will one qualification change things for the women's game the way that it seems to have for the men's game? Yeah, I mean, just before I answer that, a dual qualification or sometimes, you know, triple qualification thing is really important for us in Wales because so many, you know, footballers do have qualification routes into different countries. And I think you're right, you know, in the old days, you know, Flinney was, you know, persuading people and twisting arms and so on, whereas now, you, you know, we don't have to do that. We do occasionally, by the way, you know, and Osh and Roberts did a lot of work on this and Gus Williams at the FAW Trust to you know, establish relationships with players' families to make sure that they felt part of the Welsh setup. And then Chris Coleman obviously took that forward and then Rob's, Rob's taking it forward again. But it is really important because the players can see that there's a route to playing internationally and they buy into the whole concept and culture of the squad, you know, learning the anthem and the history and so on, which is really fundamental. And that's happened in the women's game as well. You know, we've uncovered, partly through Jane Ludlow, but also through Gemma Granger now, a lot of dual qualified players who are opting for Wales quite young. You know, some of them could potentially have played for England. And that's really encouraging that they're coming to us. You know, people like Kerry Holland, you know, um, some players like that, you know, Rhiannon Roberts, um, play for plays for Liverpool. Great players, you know, who... Really talented, but want to play for Wales, and you know have got that kind of passion, you know, instilled in them. So that's good. The question you asked, Leon, was you know qualification. Yeah, there's no doubt it's a game changer. Getting to the World Cup in Australia, New Zealand, um, in 2023 would be the biggest game changer for the women's game ever. But don't underestimate how hard that's going to be. You know, I don't want to kind of pour buckets of water, cold water, on people's hopes. But we're in a good place. I was chatting to Gemma 
Granger before Christmas and we were both saying we're in a great place but we've got the hard miles ahead of us because the reality is what we are hoping for is a runners-up position um, for a playoff but the way the complicated way the playoffs work for European qualification means that it's a blinking tough ask even if you get to the playoffs because there's two phases to get through the successful runners-up the top three don't come in into, into until phase two so if we're not in the top three runners-up positions we will be facing somebody decent in the first playoff and then we have to get through to the next playoff so it's, it's quite you know it's quite difficult Having said all of that, and that's just me being realistic, having said all of that, this is probably one of our best chances to, to qualify. Um, France, you know, should win the group, but we are the best other side in that group. And if we can get something off France at home in the next game, then I think we'll do it. And if we can get something off France, of course, we could finish, you know, in a decent runners-up position. But it's not going to be easy. You know, it's certainly not going to be easy. But bear in mind, it's going to be the last chance for people like Jess... Fishlock and probably Tash Harding, Helen Ward and, and the older girls, Kaylee Green, they're going to give everything to get us over the line this time. Um, and it's a nice blend of youth and experience, great management setup, great support from the FAW. You know, if we can't do it this time, then it's going to be incredibly disappointing, but it's not going to be easy. And fans turning out to watch the team and to cheer them on as well and creating a bit of an atmosphere, like you said, I mean, even in the cold, (laughs) bitterly cold of Llanelli, you know, it was noisy and it was helpful that, you know, the goals are are going in. But nevertheless, there's there's an atmosphere now and there is a following and there is an appetite and that must obviously um, project itself onto the onto the pitch. But that leads me on to another question. I'll play devil's advocate to a, a, well, maybe quite a large extent, actually. To what extent does, and it comes back to this word governance, I suppose, does the success of the women's team at that national level, is there a danger that that almost kind of soaks up all of the potential interest? Because there is a domestic women's game. Yes, there's been some uh, controversial, I think it's fair to say, changes and restructures to the domestic women's game in Wales. To what extent do we need the people who are going along, for example, to Llanelli, and who will no doubt be there at the France game in, uh, in, in, in April, to show an interest and to be able to find out details and information about women's domestic games? in Wales for the vibrancy and the health of the women's game to be a little bit more as the word sort of holistically healthy not just this potentially top heavy arrangement where it's just the the national team that gets all the interest well it's always a, a risk but i don't think it's too much of a risk for us in wales at the moment because the women's strategy you know de- development of the women's uh, game and the strategy for doing that is very much predicated on a strong domestic setup um, but we've got to be realistic. You know, the Adran leagues are doing well. You know, the Adran Premier is a really good standard. And I think we'll see some of those players selected for Wales squads that are already in under-19s and under-17 squads. And, they, you know, they, I think some of the senior squad players will come through as well. Um, but, you know, the reality is it's it's similar to the men's game, you know, to play at the right competitive levels. The, lots of the girls are having to go to England to play in the WSL. Um, because the standard of competition is higher. That'll always be the case, you know, uh, realistically, as it is in the men's game, you know. Um, who knows, maybe we can build up the leagues to, to you know, capture some of, of the players playing at high level. But that's not what it's all about. You know, we need a strong domestic club game to develop the game. Um, we need under-19 sets set up so that they're playing competitively through the Adran uh, Prem clubs and, and Adran North, North and South as well. Um and the work that Laurie uh, Roberts has been doing as head of the women's game in the FAW is really important. We're now seeing a kind of seamless, 
hopefully, pathway from young girls coming into the game, exit routes into clubs, if they're talented into a you know, elite pathway. So by the time they're 14, they're playing regularly, they're getting good coaching and they're playing against elite boys. Um, so, you know, over time that will have an impact, not just on the national team, but the players who don't make the national team will be good club players. So I hope, you know, that the two things are complementary. It's not easy making change, by the way, you know, when you when you want to radically transform sport, as we're trying to do with the women's game, you've got to make tough decisions, you know, but I think the decisions have, mm. will be proved to be the right ones over time. Yeah. OK, so I've got a, a question again about the women's team. So for, for anyone who's maybe only recently come to uh, take an interest in the women's game, or certainly the national team, how good is Jess Fishlock? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's, she's so good. She's not bad, is she, Jess? I mean, fair play. God, I've known Jess since she was seven, I think. And she came along to one of our Cardiff City ladies' sessions. There was a scheme called Champion Coaching. And I think it was going on, you know, just before our training session. So a couple of us had arrived early and we watched these young girls playing. And you could just see, even at that age, Jess was like head and shoulders above everybody. And she would have been a head and shoulders above any boy playing, by the way, at that time. Just really technically good, you know, real real spirit, you know, really gutsy and gobby, let's say. And <laughs> she's gone on to fulfil all of that potential, hasn't she, you know? Um and that's brilliant, you know. I mean, she's she's a great player. She's a great person, good friend of mine. And somebody who, by the way, I think will come home, I hope, after her time in the US and be involved in Welsh society, you know, whether that's involved through football, you know, through football governance or whether it's involved more widely. You know, she, she's, she's one of these footballers who's got her own views. Um, and they're the kind of people we need to get involved in politics in Wales, I'd say. So, you know... She'll probably have another career after a football career, but she hasn't done bad in the football one, has she really? No, no, she has dipped a toe in the, the, the politics on on, uh, on social media, I know. Um, Just for first minister. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I don't think people realise quite how good a player she is and, and, you know, talking at kind of world level, international level. And of course, you know, with like 100 and we've all lost count, we, we couldn't remember how many caps she's got, but tons. And there was that statistic. Think, yeah, yeah, there was that statistic, wasn't it? Something that just before, I think it was in the autumn. I think like Wales had played like 180 or 200 games, I think it was. Because, yeah, sorry, it was the 200th international, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And and she played in like 120 of them or something. And it was just like, yeah, wow, yeah. that's basically almost every game yeah, we've played. Incredible. Just, just incredible. And and having also combined those caps with playing in far-flung parts of the globe as well and all that travel it involved, just incredible. Yeah. And, and most valued player, you know, this season's most valued player in, yeah. in the US. Now, that takes something, you know, because you're up against some great competition there. But that sums Jess up, you know. Most valued player is always the player who contributes most. At some of the unseen work as well, you know, when you look at the role Jess plays in the in the Cymru team now, you know, and it's a very different, probably a bit less glamorous role than she used to play when she was younger. But, you know, Jess will roll her sleeves up and get stuck in, in any role because no, mm. nobody's prouder than her to, to wear the red shirt, you know. So it's great to see. She's, you know, she's 35 now, I think. And um, if she can get to a World Cup, I tell you, she'll perform on that stage as well, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised she's one of the better players in a World Cup. Oh, I just love to see that. Just talking about Jess playing in, in America, and uh, actually, like it was a few years ago, I just played a sort of pickup game with a bunch of um, American college students, male and female. I hope this doesn't come across as patronising, but I was kind of quite stunned by how good the women were technically, how how much they understood the game, making runs, finding the angles, positioning, and so on. 
and I know like American women's soccer, as they would call it over there, is advanced. They are, you know, they have been since the start of the women's game one of the, the top teams. But I, I just wondered, like, you know, is it maybe something because women aren't as reliant on speed and strength, and that was kind of the the, the things that would seem to count for a lot when I played junior football. It's like, you know, the fastest and the strongest kids seem to be the most effective. Whereas, I, you know, I wasn't fast or strong, so I, you know, I, could, I couldn't really affect games. But I always felt my, my, like my understanding of football was as good as anyone else on the team. And maybe that's kind of gets more developed in girls at a younger age because they're not as reliant on speed and strength. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably a part of it. But it's also that we're seeing much better coaching for mm. girls and women now. I mean, probably already yeah. had that in the States, but, you know, you can see now in the women's game here in Wales and, and probably in all of Western Europe that, you know, the, the technical skills of girls are now coming to the fore because they're being coached properly. So there's there's the old saying as well that girls are better at being coached than boys. And lots of coaches will say that girls listen more and have fewer, a sort of less less fixed mindset about how to play the game. So they will listen and they will adapt their game to suit, you know, different forms of play and styles and tactical formations and so on. I, th- I think generally girls are more intelligent footballers and boys I mean that's a sweeping statement but because there are lots of intelligent boy footballers and men footballers but they will listen better and adjust and play for the team uh, more if you know one of the one of the risks we have in the women's game now in my opinion is that unless we get the governance of the game right at every level domestically European and globally there's a risk that we try and copy the growth of the men's game too much and we just put in place things that worked for yeah. the men yeah. And and that isn't the way I'd like to see women's football grow because it is different in a good way. It's the same sport, but it's it's different, and we need to celebrate the differences. Um, because I think actually over time that's going to bring bigger dividends. We're seeing some of that now with the sponsorship deals that the top European uh, football is gaining. I mean, look at the stuff we've got in for the women's Champions League now from some big big sponsors like PepsiCo and Visa and so on. And the reason for that is because they like the values of the women's game compared. To to the men's game um, and they're choosing women's football over men's football sometimes so I think we're on the cusp of something really unique in women's football and if we just ape the men's game we're actually risking the distinctiveness mm. of what we're doing no I think that's a really good 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 point and I've been I've, what I found incredibly refreshing watching the women's games there's less harassment of the referees and less um, you know, by the players now um, still in the stands I think they still get a hard time but um, um, harassment's not necessarily the word but that the lack of respect for the officials um, I don't see that to the same extent in the women's game less cynical I, I, I've said this a couple of times on the, on the podcast I've never I, I don't know if, I don't know if the data's out there whether this stuff is even researched but to me when I've watched the Wales women's team compared to the men's team the ball feels like it's in play for longer for more minutes of a of a ninety. Yeah, I don't know the stats on that, but there's a bit there's a bit more cynicism mm. creeping into the women's game for sure. And you know, you you look at some of the overseas sides, you look at some Champions yeah. League ties, and you'll see a bit more of that. But you're right in saying that it's not as prevalent, and that's good. It's back to my point about values, really. You know, I think women still recognise that. You know, we've had to fight hard to get to where we've got to. You know, and um, we we want to enjoy the game. You know, it's uh, because it's not professional everywhere. We're able to play it with the right 
it, mm. take this the right way, amateur mm. values, you know, um, a sen- sense of fair play and belief and respect and so on. And I hope that doesn't sound too romantic because, you know, there's been some mm. brutal mm. incidents mm. in women's football as well. But I think you're mm. right mm. in saying mm. generally it's different. Just on the point of strength that you mentioned, uh, Leon, my daughter tackled someone so hard on the weekend that literally he did a somersault, landed heavily, <laughs> burst into tears and they stopped. <laughs> They stopped the game early because it was like it was near the near the end anyway. Oh, they thought, actually, let's just call it an end now. <laughs> um, Good for her. <laughs> sorry, actually, I'm, I'm I'm smiling here at that, but should should I be? I wonder. And she towers um, over most of the um, uh, most of the other uh, boys playing as well. She's um, uh, yeah, a budding Sophie Ingle. I'd like to I'd like to think, Great. but uh, don't want to put too much, too much so. pressure on it. But um, but yeah, so there's pushback there from uh, from my 11 year old about the. Uh, that the point around the strength. Leon, final question of Laura, but f- from you. So, yeah, are we going to qualify for the World Cup in Qatar? Oh, I really hope so. I feel like this is a moment we've been waiting for, isn't it? Even if it is in Qatar, of all the places that we could qualify for a World mm. Cup in. But yeah. it's not going to be easy, is it? Let's, you know, I think we all got a bit carried away when the draw was made and we thought, oh, Austria, yeah, and, you know, that's of all the teams, that's the best draw we could get. And they didn't, you know, they didn't perform wonderfully in their group, did they? they? You know, they beat the weakest sides, but, you know, they struggled against, I think it was Israel and Scotland. Was it Denmark as well? They were. Yeah, yeah. Denmark, yeah. So, you know, yeah, of course they're beatable. I think it's completely dependent on whether we're able to put out our first team, you know, our strongest team. We need everybody there, don't we? You know, um, we need players playing. That's a risk, you know, that we've got too many players who. Uh, aren't playing regularly for their club sides because, you know, if we do beat Austria, it's playing again within four days. Um, and I worry about, you know, fatigue and match fitness and so on. But it's about confidence too. If players are playing, you know, generally they're confident about their game. You know, it's very hard to come into a game as, we, as we've as we seen with Gareth Bale, to be fair. I mean, Aaron Ramsey, I think, has been the one player who can kind of pick up, a you know, the pace of a game, even if he hasn't played. But I think we need Bale, Ramsey, Allen, Ampadu, Ben Davis, Ward... James Moore, we need everybody fit, don't we? And then I think we can beat Austria. And I think if we beat Austria, we'll beat whoever we face in the final because we'll have momentum um, and we're home. So I wouldn't worry about Scotland or Ukraine if we beat Austria. I think we can I think we can do it, but Austria is not going to be easy. Yeah, just to uh, add on to that, I think, yeah, three factors I think are going to be really important for beating Austria. Is one, is availability of first-choice players, as you mentioned. Two is getting the, the tactics right. Yeah. Um, because last time we played them at home, Coleman got it completely wrong and was saved yeah. by a 17-year-old kid making his debut. And um, third one is is mentality of the players needs to be absolutely on it. It's not about a second game at all. There won't be a second game unless their mentality exactly. is right and they're yeah. completely focused on beating Austria. And if if those three things fall into place, we will we will beat Austria for yeah, sure. I agree. You mentioned that seventeen-year-old uh, Ben Woodburn uh, rescued us. Then last episode, give that a quick plug. Was uh, very grateful for the time of Scott McIntosh from the Amoruso Let's It Run fan site for Heart of Midlothian, where Ben is uh, well halfway point of the season on loan there. So some interesting insights as to as to how he's getting on in Edinburgh and where he might end up at the end of this season. But uh, back to this episode, Laura, incredibly grateful for your time. I'll let you have your evening back. <laughs> but thank you very, very much. I, I would imagine most people listening to us are already familiar with with you on social media and things like that. But is there anything you want to sort of give a quick sort of plug to by, by way of those sorts of contacts? 
Oh gosh, um, yeah, well thank you for having me first of all, I really enjoyed it, I always like talking about football and what, find me on social media, on Twitter at, at Laura McAllister and there's still our website, we've kept our website www.lauramcallisterforfootball.com in the hope that we'll be fighting another election at some point in the future but that's got some of the interviews and endorsements and support and manifesto for the FIFA election last year but no, it's been my pleasure. Was it Montreux you said you went out to? With those elections, yes, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you need anybody to carry your bags next time, Laura, just uh, <laughs> you know where I, I know am. where to come. Lovely, yeah. lovely part of the world. Um, uh, yeah, once again, wonderful. Best of luck with with that. Obviously, other stuff that you're involved in. I, I glossed over lots of it in the introduction. There's so many things you're involved in. But yeah, no, your credit to the to the nation, credit to the game, and uh, hope we see more of you. And your influence is, is brought to bear on any number of aspects of the game because uh, we'll be uh, we'll be the better for it for sure. Oh, dear. Yeah, dear, Laura.